Yeah, I didn't have the mic on. <clears throat> so you really have all seen, I mean, we know what, we don't know what's going on in your minds, of course, <clears throat> but you've all seemed really, it's been really quiet still in the hall, which is unusual for the first day of a retreat. Not that we expect it to stay that way. It doesn't need to stay that way. <laughs> but I'm just commenting and appreciating all of your uh, sincere commitment, you know, in being here. I know sometimes the first day can be a little long. Sometimes the first evening you can be a little tired. And that's okay. It's just normal. I just want to talk a little tonight about meditation practice. You know, the Buddha famously said, I'm sure you will have heard this, that I teach suffering and its end. Teach suffering and its end. And I used to, I used to wonder, well, why does he have to teach suffering? That part seems obvious. The ending, of course, we do want. We sign up for that. But really what uh, I want to talk about, the angle I want to talk about it tonight, is the sense of maybe what he was talking about and what our whole meditation, our whole spiritual path is about, isn't about getting to somewhere else that suffering is not and changing, getting to a different world, basically. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. I mean, if you look at the Buddha's life, even after he was awakened, he couldn't stop wars, he couldn't stop death, he couldn't stop his kinsmen fighting, he couldn't stop even um, one of his cousins who was a monk and jealous from trying to kill him. It's not that his awakening stopped all the rotten stuff that goes on in the world. As Rodney was saying last night or this or sometime, <laughs> it all blends, you know, but, but basically, Teaching suffering and its end is about shifting the paradigm of how we understand ourselves in the world so that we recognize actually what suffering is, how it's created, and how it comes to an end. Maybe it's a different kind of suffering and a different idea of freedom than we might have assumed from our normal context. There's a famous two stanzas, I think Rodney also mentioned, not these stanzas, but the Buddha said over and over that suffering and its end arises and ceases in our mind, in this mind and body, nowhere else. So our practice of understanding, of freeing the heart, isn't specifically about reorganizing structures in the world, although when we think and speak and act from clarity, from compassion, then the way we interact and engage will have the effect of changing structures. We won't be feeding the normal paradigm. Buddha, all states of being are determined by mind. It is mind that leads the way. Just as the wheel of the ox cart follows the hoof print of the animal that draws it, so suffering will surely follow when we speak or act impulsively from an impure state of mind. All states of being are determined by mind. 
It is mind that leads the way. As surely as our shadow never leaves us, so well-being will follow when we speak or act with a pure state of mind. Mind is the forerunner of all things. This is really a powerful, possible realigning of the way we may uh, consciously or unconsciously think that we understand ourselves in the world and what brings us happiness and what brings us suffering. And so our meditation practice here is as well the work of the mind. These words pure and impure, they're not, um, they're not usually a big hit in our culture, you know, to talk about having a pure mind or an impure mind. Our habit is to jump on these words, just like good or bad or good or evil, with a kind of a, a judgment, a criticalness, a self-judgment. If we think I have an impure mind, you know, it's like already there's like a little disgusting, a little, you know, what's the matter, impure, get back. Or if I have a pure mind, you know, it kind of has some kind of, you know, I don't know, ivory soap, 99 and 44, 100% pure or something. Although I used to, as a kid, even wonder, pure what? You know? <laughs> so, I just want to define, um, define when he's talking about speaking and acting with an impure mind or heart, take away negativity or judgment and bring in in listening to this just the quality of interest oh what does that mean pure and impure how does that function to cause suffering or happiness that quality of interest without judging is the seed of awakening is the seed of our whole practice so when he talks about impure thinking speaking acting with an impure mind it's very straightforward It's when our thoughts, our speech, our actions, our states of mind are motivated by greed, by its reverse negativity, which could be hatred, fear, aversion, that whole range, or confusion, delusion, confusion of just basic denial, basically just getting everything all wrong. You know, we're acting as if it's this way, but it's really that way. Or the deepest level of delusion, confusion is thinking that it's all about me. That's, that's all it means. And it's not like we're bad if we're doing that. It's just a habit of all of our minds. But it's not always present. So what if, when our whole meditation practice is really about um, cultivating or recognizing, coming to uh, trust, almost take refuge in, as we talked about the refuges last night, this so-called pure heart mind, which is just simply a moment of awareness, of consciousness, of uh, wakefulness, when our awareness, our consciousness, the heart and mind is not colored by one of these difficult states. That's all. That's all. So what if the, the real... Um, thrust of our meditation practice is not to create some kind of pure state of mind, but rather to actually recognize that this is actually the baseline, the more natural, normal state of heart and mind, innate purity, 
goodness. What if we could learn to recognize and trust that? And also learn to see how greed, hatred, self-judgment, confusion, how they arise based on misperception, based on misrecognition of experience, and then telling ourselves stories or having views of what life is about that don't match the way things actually are. So what if the, the real truth and our more natural self, not self, okay, not, we not, can't, that's the bad word in Buddhism, self, but our more natural <laughs> sense of being is actually the pure heart and mind, the mind that's free of craving, of clinging, of aversion, of self-judgment. And so in some way, what if then our, our, our work in practice isn't to create some other amazing world and get rid of all this gunk, but rather to recognize, or along with recognizing the suffering, I teach suffering and its end, to recognize all the moments, because experience is only moments, all the moments when this pure mind and heart is manifesting is recognizable, we can learn to trust it, to recognize, to feel it. And so I just pointing out, it's, it's little moments, little moments that we tend to overlook so easily because they get hidden by, you know, the intensity of something pleasant or the intensity of how unhappy we feel or just intensity, period. Those little moments when you're just having a cup of tea and there's nothing special, but there's a sense of peace or contentment or ease, or you can pick a word. It could be happiness. It doesn't have to be happiness. It doesn't have to be joy. It could be joy. It could be peace. It could be calm. It could be just a simple sense of isness. It's like this. In that moment, you're not analyzing it, but there's no leaning into the future or connecting to the past. There's no big story about this is the most amazing cup of tea I've ever had. (laughs) Then it's not like that anymore, right? Or you're just taking a step in the walking meditation. Maybe the last step you were bored out of your mind. Maybe the next step you're saying, get me out of here. But this step is just a step. There's just space, nothing created around it. Notice those moments. We all experience many of them in a day. Natural peace and ease of the heart and mind. And then the habits, the habits, which we tend to take more for granted, think they're the baseline, is to jump in. Oh, natural peace and ease of mind and body. Now I've got it. How can I keep it? How can I have this step again? How can I have this tea again? Oh, now it's gone. Oh, I blew it. That was just a fluke. You know? And of course, this one, which one do you trust? I mean, bottom line, you know, which one do we really think is me? The Buddha also said that his teachings go against the stream of society, or like swimming upstream against the natural current of society, even in his time. So same here. And I mean, in some ways, any kind of not just Buddha's teaching, but any of our profound um, awakening paths tend to run against 
a society of consumerism, a society of greed, a society of having and doing and being and comparing and, and achieving, you know. And I'm sure most of you know coming on a retreat, maybe your family and friends have gotten used to it if you've done it a lot, but the first time it's rare that the people we know go, unless they've been doing it and they're the ones dragging you, but if you know your, your friends and family haven't been, I'm going on a week of silence. What? I was telling someone, a friend's mother last year, just silence? You mean like you don't watch TV in the evening? <laughs> like you really don't talk the whole time? Just not, not critical, just cannot compute, you know? So in that way, but that's an obvious way. It's against the culture, and that's just retreat form. But on a more subtle, but actually much more profound way, our path of exploration, of interest, of awakening, is, move, is helping us step outside or move upstream against the habits of our own mind and heart, our own assumptions. Not even our conscious ways of thinking, but the assumptions, how we perceive ourselves in the world. This is part of the Buddha was so brilliant that how we perceive something leads to how we think about it. How we think about it constructs the views we have of the world and what makes sense, right? And often we don't even realize we have those views. We just think that's how it is. So our awareness practice, our mindfulness practice, is instead of just running along with the stream of our views, the way it's set up, the sitting, the walking, just notice what's happening every moment, is it gives a structure to just not be carried away by the views, but it's almost like you just step into the side and looking. How's the mind working right now? What's causing discontent? What's causing dissatisfaction? What does this experience of non-dissatisfaction, non-clinging feel like? So just recognizing which I actually love this sense of just recognizing how perceptions and explanations define our worldview and we don't realize how we're carried along. Well, I'll just give you a, a recent example that I found uh, amusing. I was in uh, Burma in January with some friends. Uh, and we, were, we were doing different things, offering food and supplies to different villages in different places. So I was with several friends. This was coming from a monastery organized. It's a very traditional Burmese Buddhist worldview of the teacher and the people we were offering to. And two of the friends I was with, they're both uh, European and American women who are nuns over there. And so we, you know, we're all, t and with other, other friends too. So you take a lot of pictures. One of the formal ways uh, generosity is offered is when someone's offering and there's a receiving. It's a very formal, happy occasion, and there's always a photo. So we have like a million photos. Okay, so I'm putting the photos of some of them from my friend who's been a nun there for 17 years, a European woman. She was putting some of the photos from her camera onto the computer. And on some of the photos on different people's skirts or on different people in certain situations, there were these perfectly round, kind of bright, shiny circles. They look like circles of light all over. So she looks at them and really being immersed in the classical Buddhist worldview, which talks about different realms of existence and what we might call angels, devas is the word in, in the Pali language, but beings living on more ethereal, happy realms. So she looks at those, and right away she goes, these are Davis. 
these are the manifestation of devas, which I would never have thought that. Then our, my other friend, who's also a nun there, but she's a scientist. She has a PhD, she's a biologist, and she's a very scientific mind. And she immediately goes, that is some moisture that has gotten caught in the lens and that is having this effect. You know, that's what it is. Boom. And I thought, that was great. I mean, who knows? I don't know. Who knows? I thought, well, it'll be interesting when we see from another camera. So then when I got home and I put some photos from my camera on my computer, different camera, different computer, similar you know, pictures of the same time and place, but different pictures. Mine also had bright circles. And, you know, the same time, but not exactly the same place, right? I thought, well, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Maybe it's David's. The point is, isn't whether it is or it isn't. The point I love about that is that quality of the open mind and heart of well, what if? Who knows? When we know how things are, boom, the mind and heart is snapshot. When we don't know, but we're interested, we're present, without bringing along assumptions, that's when the quality of interest and wakefulness and the, the steadiness of being present with that quality of open, who knows, but what's here now? That's when the truth can reveal itself over and over. So just, I love, I love those moments. Who knows? Let our mind open. So in terms of the deep-rooted habits that the Buddha talks about, this greed, this hatred, this confusion, again, looking at what if we shift the paradigm of what we assume? I won't even say believe, because it's for most of us, it's beyond belief. It's, we don't even know. It's a, this is how it is. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is um, an American man who's been a Theravada Buddhist monk for many, many years, and he's one of maybe the two f- at presently alive now, foremost translators of the Pali language Buddhist texts into English. So he's saying this. Remember that the Buddhist teaching goes against the current of one's habitual assumptions and attitudes. After all, most of our habits revolve around the desire to enjoy pleasure, to avoid pain, and to preserve the illusion that the universe centers around our individual self. Now, does that sound at all familiar to anybody? And you think, well, what's wrong with a desire to enjoy pleasure? I mean, you know, given a choice, what's wrong with wanting to avoid pain? And then to preserve the illusion the universe centers around ourselves, we might fudge on that one a little bit. You might be able to say, yeah, maybe that's not so good. But look, just watch your thoughts over the days. With honesty, without judgment, how much of it is me at the center and everything going up? It's all about me. It's all about me. So without jumping into right or wrong, he's saying these are our assumptions, our attitudes. Then he goes on, when one's personal experience of dissatisfaction, suffering, becomes vivid enough, I like that, it becomes vivid enough, in other words, you can't ignore it anymore, it may induce one to become disenchanted by these habits and then to begin to place our trust in uh, the way the Buddha talks about reality as guidelines for liberation. But until we actually even just begin to get a glimmer that maybe these uh, 
responses, reactions to life, maybe these strategies aren't working. First of all, we have to even recognize that's a strategy that's going on, that that's not just the obvious and only way to act. As long as we really deeply, beyond belief, but know that happiness rests on getting as much pleasant experience as possible, then that's going to be what rules our life. And as long as we deeply believe no, that the way to end unhappiness is to be separated from anything that's unpleasant, which we know it's impossible, but that doesn't stop us from trying. As long as we really somehow believe that, suffering means being together with that which we don't like. And the ending of suffering means that doesn't have to happen anymore. You know, as long as our idea of freedom and liberation is, you know, floating on white clouds and everything's pleasant and rose-scented in the air, if you like rose scent, then that's going to be the underlying worldview that guides not only our choices and decisions, but our attitudes in our mind. It's going to guide how we do our meditation practice. It's going to guide everything. And until we learn how to not hate it, that's just the same thing, right? Not tell yourself you're stupid, because you, that's just the same thing. Until we learn how to step outside, step and just have a look. Is this working or not? Is this present or not? A pleasant experience comes, I start wanting it. Does that work or not for happiness? With interest, not with judging. Until we start to look that way, we're never going to be able to see what's really bringing ease and peace. We'll never even be able to recognize ease and peace. Because another thing about these little moments of ease and peace for many of us, when we're not quite present with them, they're just kind of boring, you know? Calm. I came for some juice. I mean, enlightenment, satori, it's supposed to be this big shakti kind of a hit, not just smelling my tea, give me a break, you know? Not lift my foot, put it down, yeah, that sounds really nice, but I want some juice. I want to be enlightened. It should confirm what a spiritual person I am. Not just this, you know, simple, nothing special moment of non-clinging. So learning to recognize that. But as long as we're still caught in not seeing that, the mind's idea of happiness is pleasure, intensity, then we're not going to recognize another possibility. I read a book recently about, it was about the history of nonviolence. That was the name of it. And it was you know, just about nonviolence as uh, a political um, way of relating in different periods in history. But the most interesting part that I want to bring up here was, was really in the introduction, part the Dalai Lama and part the writer. Just the word itself, nonviolence, similar to uh, ahimsa in the, in the Sanskrit or Hindi. It's, uh, ahimsa is the same as violence. So nonviolence is really just a negation of the word violence, right? So when nonviolence is the book was sort of about how nonviolence as a, um, a profound uh, and engaged, a really radical way of relating, very alive. Nonviolence doesn't convey that. Nonviolence just conveys a kind of a, 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 an abnegation of 
violence. So when we hear nonviolence, the reality in that word, what our mind goes to, is violence. Violence is kind of like the, the real thing. And nonviolence is when this real thing happens not to be there, in a way. You get us? But how powerful words are, how they reflect the way, the way our mind works. And so he gives another example. He says, what if, in English, there was no word for war. The only word for war was non-peace. You see what I mean? It really, really changes. We really don't even understand the levels of assumptions we're making in the way that we experience ourselves in the world. It's, it's just like that. So if peace is the norm, war is the aberrant experience. It still happens. It's not saying it doesn't happen. So turning this inward, even in fact the idea of nonviolence, not as just a negation of violence, but as an active, proactive way of being. What if, in our experience, when we talk about suffering, when we talk about greed, hatred, our discontent, our dissatisfaction, our self-judgment, what if that's not the bottom line? That's, that's the aberrant way of being. What if the natural peace and ease, whether it's non-clinging or calm, the simple isness of things, without needing to believe all the stories and ramifications? They come, their thoughts, they're fine. But what if this natural peace and ease is actually the real thing? And the habits of chasing after the pleasant and getting really engaged and pushing away the unpleasant and all the confusion and delusion around it's about me. What if these are mistaken habits based on misperceiving our experience, misrecognizing things over and over and over? So that's a question I posit, and that's kind of a question that's behind our moment-to-moment mindfulness practice. So if we start and we just practice, I'm going to sit, I'm going to be with the breath, I'm going to get to the breath, I'm going to hold on to the breath, I'm going to get more and more and more breaths, and so I can do better and better and better, and then I'm going to get to this state of concentration or this state of no self, and I'm going to understand because it's like this. It's already snapped shut, right? We already know it's the moisture on the lens. We already know this is what's happiness, this is what's suffering. I've got to get from suffering to happiness. This is how I do it. What if we don't know? What if we bring that quality of really uh, tender, wakeful interest to just this moment of mind and body and see how it opens up? What happens in this moment and this moment? When we feel that there's suffering, instead of going, oh, no, bad, i got to do this, what did they say? What does it feel like right now? What's the suffering? When it feels easeful, what is this like? What's happening in the mind and body right now? So our path is really to rediscover, to look in another way, both by recognizing the habits, the reactions, how they arise, how they strengthen, how they work, and also recognizing and seeing if we can just allow our conscious thinking mind to let in the moments when these habits aren't present. Not they're in the background, they're buried somewhere deep inside, and you just don't notice them right now, and it feels kind of good, but you're fooling yourself, but they'll come back. No. 
they're not present. Sometimes this is true. You need to really look and notice that. So our meditation really is not about what's happening. It really isn't. It's about the quality, the heart-mind that's meeting whatever's happening right now. That's really, really the difference. So our tendency so much in terms of self-confirmation, in terms of achieving, just in terms of doing. I mean, we only know how to do stuff by me doing it, right? I do this and X, X happens. That's just what we know. And so the habits of going after the pleasant and really judging pleasant is good. I'm not saying pleasant is bad. I'm also not saying it's good. It just is pleasant, that's all. Unpleasant doesn't have to be bad or good, just unpleasant. Can we even open to the possibility that we're sitting here and your back's really hurting and your mind's all over the place and you're feeling grumpy and it's just what it is, just fine. That even then, without creating anything around it, it's just this, grumpy mind is like this. Really, it's possible. It's still grumpy mind, don't get me wrong. It's not grumpy mind is like this, ah, with the angels. Grumpy mind is grumpy mind. But it doesn't have to go into, yeah, this and that, and then I've got to get rid of it. Then you've you know, magnified it a hundred times. Grumpy mind is like this. That's shifting the paradigm. That's stepping out of the habit. Just, oh, look what happens. Grumpy mind is like this. It can be with unpleasant. And that's not the source of the suffering. The relationship of hating, of fearing, of trying to change, of violence, really violence to ourselves, is the source of suffering. So nonviolence, as you're saying, it's not like a passive negation of, okay, whatever, that's nonviolence. That's not nonviolence. That's passive giving up. But nonviolence is really that quality of, oh, this is what's happening. Don't hate it. You don't hold on to it. But you're really present for it. And this is a trick for us because we're so, many of us anyway, so used to relating to the object, whether you know it could be a material object as a source of pleasure or suffering, the experience that's happening as the source of pleasure or suffering, somebody's making a noise, somebody's making us feel good, you know, you're making me angry kind of a thing. We're so used to that, that we have to retrain ourselves. That's really what the discipline of meditation is about retraining ourselves to get more interested in what's going on in the mind that's observing, the pure heart, the impure heart. Ajahn Chah, who was a great Thai monk meditation teacher, said in one of his books, when I was a young monk just starting to practice, I would sit in meditation and sounds would disturb me. I'd think to myself, what can I do to make my mind peaceful? So I took some beeswax and stuffed my ears with it till I couldn't hear anything at all. All that remained was a humming sound. I thought that would be peaceful, but no. All that thinking and confusion didn't arise in the ears after all. (laughs) It arose at the mind. That's the place to search for peace. So that's what we're really learning. This and this and that. Oh, search in the mind. Search for suffering, search for the end of suffering. And the only way we can search is when there's that quality of open interest without knowing already what we're going to find. 
if we know what we're going to find, the search is dead. There's no space for wisdom to arise. One of my Burmese teachers that I just saw when I was there said, it was his kick at the moment, he said, what's the difference between someone who practices awareness and someone who doesn't? So I don't know what, you know, it's kind of like, so a practitioner meets every uh, experience, every object, everything that's happening, regards it with interest as a chance to learn. And a non-practitioner responds or reacts to every situation or object with either greed or aversion or confusion. And so sometimes we're one and sometimes we're the other, you know, it's not about trying to be perfect. But I know it's really true for myself when the most difficult situations can be going on. And as I just want to point out again, meditation practice or spiritual life doesn't fix the world. You know, it doesn't stop people we love from getting sick and dying. It doesn't stop, you know, relationships from breaking up. It clearly doesn't stop war. It doesn't make everything turn out okay in that kind of a way. But it really does mean, even in the most difficult circumstances, when I notice in my mind that I'm really, I feel like I'm caught, I'm fighting, I'm struggling, I look and I see there's fear, there's aversion, there's a sense this shouldn't be happening, or on a deep level, I ought to be able to make it better, especially if it's somebody else you're trying to help, you know, I ought to be able to make it better, as if we're in control. You know, we were just talking about this today in different situations of working with family members or people in prison or whatever, in the sense of, you know, we see people as good as think we ought to be able, you know, and if, if, if difficult things happen or they fall back into old habits, that somehow we weren't good enough. I mean, talk about me being the center of everything, right? But anyway, what I see when it's suffering is that. But the same difficult situation, when I mean with, oh, what's going on now? I might actually feel more tenderness in my heart. I might feel the other person's pain in a closer, more intimate way. It's more kind of compassion, really, rather than this, oh, i got to fix it so I don't feel it. But the sense of suffering, something wrong, wrong, you know, the sense of dissonance is gone. And the sense of what's happening now. What can we see in this? What can we learn in this for ourselves and how to be of more benefit to others as well. But that's not coming out of the meanness, it's coming out of an openness to learn. It's really a vastly different way of meeting experience, meeting our life. That's really active nonviolence. Again, about this nonviolence, Gandhi, they say, you know, he invented a word for his whole uh, nonviolent way of um, political protest against the English, you know, Satyagraha, right? which they say never really caught on. We all remember Gandhi and what he did, but his word didn't really catch on, and satya means truth. And so the, they say the basic translation of satyagraha is truth force, or holding to the truth. That really, as well, is the quality of nonviolence, the quality of interest and wakefulness that mindfulness practices. It's truth force holding to the truth. And not that we know the truth, but that willingness to have that non-judging interest and just to be totally honest about whatever's arising. 
not to make me look good or to prove the fact that I'm useless or to somehow hope that we're getting somewhere. And oh my God, this again, I can't believe how much crap. No, this isn't really happening. Have you ever noticed? My mind does that. It's, I, love the, I love to look at denial. Something will come up. I noticed this, I think last week. Like I was angry, a little bit, not huge anger. You can't pretend that, well, maybe you can, but it's harder. Pretend it's not happening. I was like a little angry at someone. I noticed anger in my mind because I'm used to really watching my mind. And then it comes, I'm not really angry. And the mind wanted to believe that. No, it's really fine. I'm not angry. And just go on. Just like that's a habit. It's as if we can pretend we're not angry or we're not jealous or we're not lonely or we're not really wanting this thing to happen. Do you ever sit in meditation if you've been meditating much before and it's calm, being with the breath, for example, or changing experience, whatever, and it's going well, whatever we're calling well at the time, and yet the mind will thought, oh, it's going to keep going. And we, no, I'm not thinking that. You know? <laughs> oh, no, I don't want this. I'm really just accepting that it comes and goes. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, we can't kid ourselves, of course, because if the clinging's there when the thing goes, you know the clinging's there because you suffer. It's, it's really, it doesn't work, but it's such a trip to see how. So like this year, I kind of made the, the resolution. I just want to really, really open to total honesty in my mind. Whatever's arising, just see it. That's the path of freedom. It's like, whatever it is, well, oh, that's what it is. It's okay. It's really much more okay. Oh, no, that's not happening. You know, and you get into the whole dance. Oh, that's despair. Feels like this. Okay. And, you know, it really is okay. That shift of paradigm. So this is really what our practice is. Bankai, who was a 17th century Japanese Zen master, he said, If you don't set yourself into confrontation with things, into confrontation with experience, then your primary being reveals itself in its true form. So when we talk about meditation as being the work of the mind or purifying the mind or recognizing the pure mind, sometimes we can recognize those moments of purity. Often, we're recognizing and exploring how the confusion is triggered and takes root. How wanting or aversion or it's all about me springs up in relationship to a particular experience and how thoughts feed it and strengthen it. And this is fascinating. It's great to explore. It's really interesting. But what it's based on is the description of mind or heart itself. This is Andy Olensky's description. He's, um, he's the director, executive director of the Center for Buddhist Studies, and he's a Pali scholar. I like the way he puts things. And he said, in Buddhism, very simple definition, the mind, it's not a subject. The mind is not some solid state object, right, that's sitting here like a lump, and it stays the same, and things are coming and going within it. Feels like that, doesn't it? We're watching, and the breath comes and goes, and wanting comes and goes, but it's not. It's not something. It's not a subject that has objects as content, but the mind is rather the activity or the process of cognizing a flow of events. The mind is an activity. The cognizing, just that moment of knowing. There's hearing, right? The mind is just that moment of knowing hearing. And all the mental states, the uh, 
qualities that come along in that moment of knowing hearing. It's an activity. It's a rising and passing in every moment. It's alive. It's constantly moving. That is maybe unsettling to our ideas of wanting stability, but that's what makes a moment of freedom possible. That's what means we can be completely caught in some stupid wanting this or disliking that or whatever. And the next moment, ah, it's just this. It's always just that close because the mind is a constant activity. And so the way it works is in a moment like that, there's the moment of cognizing arises, there's hearing. Whatever other qualities, mental states, factors are going on at the same time, color that recognition, color that perception, and lead to how we think and act, right? So this is from Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. When the sense organs encounter an object, like ear and that sound, that's hearing, the only part the object itself plays is to initiate the process of perception in your consciousness. So from then on, as your mind reacts to that object, reacts to that sound, for example, it's influenced by all the accumulated habits and past experiences. The whole process is entirely subjective. So when your mind is full of anger, the world seems to be a hell realm. Have you noticed that? It can be in the most wonderful thing you've been waiting for for weeks, but you're filled with anger. You can't enjoy it. When your mind is peaceful, free from any clinging or fixation, and whatever you do is coming from a place of non-greed, non-hatred, you experience everything as naturally pure. Entirely subjective. Don't jump on yes or no, but see if you can just hold openness to explore that. Or as Ajahn Chah says in his very practical, down-to-earth way, he said he was holding up a vase, and he goes, look at this vase, look at this cup. You think it's beautiful or it's ugly or whatever you think, but it, it's indifferent. It's you who are making yourself crazy. The vase is just the vase. That's the quality of just a moment of arising mind colored by experience. That's why a sound like that can be neutral one moment. It can be beautiful or really kind of nostalgic one moment. It can drive you crazy and be so unpleasant one moment. Different mind moments, different experience. It's a different mind. So this is what we're really learning to explore moment to moment in our practice here. So we're talking about using the sensations of breath or of body or of hearing as a way to collect our attention, right? Just to be able to have the, all the activity that's going on in any one mind moment calm down enough so that we even have the sense that we can actually notice that there's a mind moment and that there are different qualities in that mind moment. You know, mostly we're just so engaged in the habits of hating and wanting, desiring and aversion. But it's not that the breath or the body or the hearing are somehow better objects. They're just tools to help calm the mind down, to then notice each breath, the sensation of each breath is different if you're being with the breath, and the way the mind is being with the breath is different. And so the quality of noticing when it's peaceful, 
Notice the peacefulness in the mind, the mind that's being with the sensations of the breath and isn't wanting, isn't aversive. Notice how when it starts to feel that little bit of, oh, it's getting better, and that little bit of leaning in, you know. And we often don't remember to turn around and look at what's happening in the mind. Yeah, this is it. Now let me get closer, let me get closer, you know. And we don't recognize that wanting, that greed. Greed is very seductive. It's like holding out a promise that if I follow this greed and get this thing, it's going to do it for me, right? And we get the thing or we don't get the thing. If we don't get the thing, well, we think that's why I'm not happy. We don't recognize the greed is the seducer. If we do get the thing, we're happy for a little while, and it's a lot littler of a while, really, than we care to acknowledge. But then we didn't also see that the greed was the seducer. We believe what it's telling us. It's almost like we, the greed, oh, just another thing to want, you know? And it makes, when greed's in the mind, it really colors our perception. The thing desired or the experience desired looks so much more wonderful, lovely, doesn't it? When you have a crush on somebody, don't they just look like they're so amazing? how they dress and how they walk and you know if you get them then you find out that wasn't true if you don't get them eventually the crush dies and you look at him and go what was i thinking (laughs) what was that all about that was craving in the mind aversion hatred fear the same kind of seduction you're sitting here and someone's making a noise in the hall and you think, if they could only stop it, if they would only stop, my sitting would be better. And that's so believable, so believable. Only I could fix it all. Everything would be okay. So our practice is to turn around and feel, oh, hatred in the mind feels like this. Wanting in the mind feels like this. I'm the most important thing in the universe. Unfortunately, it doesn't usually come through that clearly. It feels like this. But the mind that's noticing isn't judging any of these things. It's just interested. Ah, how does wanting work in the mind? How does it feel when it's present? How is it when it's absent? Where's the suffering? How is aversion and hatred in the mind? How is self-judging in the mind? Oh, self-judging is like this. Sleepiness is like this. That's how Ajahn Sumedho talks about it. It's like this. So that every moment, a feeling of breath is like this. Hearing's like this. Hating being here is like this. You know, wanting to go to sleep is like this. And over the steadiness of this practice, we gradually, or more, less than gradually, begin to realize that our refuge isn't in what's happening. The refuge is in the awareness, that moment of interested, non-judging awareness itself. That's always available to us when we're not running away from experience or trying to hold on to experience. We learn to rest at ease in whatever arises the way Krishnamurti describes it. When you look totally, you give your whole attention, your whole being, everything of yourself, just in a moment, just one moment, your eyes, your ears, your nerves. You attend with complete self-abandonment 
And then there's no room for fear, no contradiction, and therefore no conflict. Just this in a moment is the end of fear, the end of desire, the end of conflict. This complete self-abandonment in interested, kind, full attention. Just for a moment. Don't stretch it into the past, into the future, think I can't do it over time. It's just right now. Pain in the back. Boredom. Tingling. Hearing. Breathing. We get lost in a story, fine, thinking. It's never further than this. It's always, always right here. And so what develops is what Sumedho, Ajahn Sumedho calls a real confidence in this natural, interested, non-judging awareness. He calls it intuitive awareness to, and to distinguish it from thinking about things. But it's a natural confidence that develops. Just like I was saying, I'll be in the middle of some difficult situation and I'm struggling. It's like, oh, what's happening? Despair. That's a movement, a shift of paradigm from me and fixing it and wanting it pleasant to, oh, awareness. Awareness can hold anything. Awareness is always available. It's like this. That's the movement from suffering to the end of suffering. Our job, in a way, is to recognize that, to trust it, and really learn to know it for ourselves. I mean, don't believe anything I say. That won't do you any good anyway. And maybe I'm wrong. Look and see for yourself in any moment, in every moment. It doesn't matter what your experience is. It's always available. So I just want to end with a little poem. For me, it gives me the feeling of how this just this sense of isness and peace is available in any, any moment. By Mary Oliver, Snow Geese. Oh, to love what is lovely and will not last. What a task to ask of anything or anyone. Yet it is ours, not by the century or the year, but by the hours. One fall day I heard above me and above the sting of the wind a sound I did not know, and my look shot upward. It was a flock of snow geese, winging it faster than the ones we usually see. And being the color of snow, catching the sun, so they were in part at least golden. I held my breath, as we do sometimes, to stop time, when something wonderful has touched us, as with a match, which is lit and bright, but does not hurt in the common way but delightfully, as if delight were the most serious thing you ever felt. The geese flew on. I have never seen them again. Maybe I will, someday, somewhere. Maybe I won't. It doesn't matter. What matters is that when I saw them, I saw them as through the veil, secretly, joyfully, clearly. So that's our task, seeing through the veil, secretly, joyfully, clearly. So let's just sit quietly for a moment, please.
Thank you for your attention. So there's about 35 minutes or so for walking, and then at 9, the last sitting, which will be short. And also, at that sitting, we'll have uh, some short chanting together, loving-kindness chant in the Pali language, which is a lovely language for chanting. And we'll have chanting sheets you can read along with. You don't have to chant if you don't like. You can just listen. But it's kind of nice, energizing uh, way to end the evening. And also, loving-kindness is never a bad thing <laughs> to put into our minds and hearts. So I urge you to come. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.